Father, we do thank you again for this time, and we're, we're glad to come to your word now. We have a sense of anticipation to, to hear you, to hear your spirit speaking to us in these moments. So, Lord, would we be attentive in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. So we've been thinking about what it means to live the Christian life without pretending. We don't want to be going through the motions, treating this church as some kind of social club. We want to have a real relationship with the Lord and for that relationship to make a difference to the kind of lives that we lead. John Calvin once said that it would be better for a preacher to break his neck on the way to the pulpit than to preach a message that he himself was not prepared to believe. And in the same way, I think there's a sense, a warning for us in that notion as we've reflected on this topic of revival. Why? Because we can't, it would be better for us not to, to touch this topic, not to touch this study, if we ourselves weren't prepared to be revived. And so I, I ask myself, I challenge my, my own soul, and, and I ask us together, are, are you ready to change? Are you ready to be changed, and if necessary, to be the first to be changed by this gospel that we hold so dear? And in many ways, uh, this week is a, a summation of the, the series overall, and I have four reflections to share with you from this text, four ideas that I think are really important for us to get our arms around if we really are going to apply this series to our lives. Four ideas then, the first of which comes from verse 16 through 17, and, and it's simply this. First, our culpability. Our culpability or our own guilt in not being revived and God's call to repent of it. See how direct Jesus is with the Laodiceans? Again, if you want to know what Jesus is thinking, ask him. He'll, he, he'll tell you and he'll tell you straight. He says, you are lukewarm. You're neither hot nor cold. You're neither on fire for the Lord nor particularly antagonistic to him. You're just meandering through this life of faith with a kind of mundane average mediocrity. You're lukewarm and because of that, I will spit you out of my mouth. I'll spit you out of my mouth. His assessment continues. Uh, You think you're where it's at. You say, I am rich. I prospered. I need nothing. Not realizing, Jesus says, let me tell you what what you really like, that you're pitiable, that you're wretched, poor, blind, and naked. Now, in light of this, Jesus says, verse 19, you see it there, be zealous and repent. Be zealous and repent. In other words, he's saying, you have everything that you need to be alive today, to be awake to me today, to be animated by my grace. You don't need to be sleepy Christians. You don't need to be part of a sleepy church. I have given you everything that you need. Your best spiritual days can be today, if you will, but repent. In other words, our spiritual sleepiness is not caused by some defection in the gospel. Our spiritual sleepiness is caused by our own spiritual apathy. We take responsibility for for recognizing our our own contribution, our own guilt, our own culpability. Now, sometimes in the church we find it hard to do this. 
I find it hard to, to face up to this. I remember at the start of the series, I was sharing my, my own tendency to, to fall asleep on family movie night. We had 20 minutes into the movie, and I just, I'm just fast asleep. Next thing I know is Rosie will be, my wife will be calling my name, James. And, and what do I do when she does that? Two steps. First step, denial, right? Uh, I'm awake, I'm awake, I'm watching, you know? And she says, what just happened in the movie? And I'm like, I do not know, right? <laughs> so my denial doesn't last long. So then that have, when that's failed, I move into excuses. You know, well, you know, I'm tired, it's been a long day, busy week, blah, blah, blah. Now, look, that's fine when you're sleeping on the couch. But you see how we have a tendency to do the same thing in our spiritual lives? We just find it hard to face up to our culpability. So, uh, first of all, spiritually, we'll just live in denial. You know, oh, someone asks, how are you doing? And we say, we're doing fine. You're in small group and you're inquiring about, you know, how's your walk with the Lord? And, and, and you just make it sound a little better than it is. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm doing okay. When, you know, if we saw a video of your day, a video of your week, you're doing anything but okay. After denial, we'll then often move into excuses. Well, you know, it's tough. I'm just in this season. These things are happening. Dealing with that busyness. Got this difficult person. Waiting until this project ends. One thing after another to explain away the fact that, yeah, we'll, we'll get to prioritizing our spiritual lives. But we just can't right now. We live in this kind of denial or this sense of excuse because we find it hard to face up to our guilt. And one of the things that we've tried to do in this series is just create a little space a little space just to be honest with ourselves and, and for, it to be, for it to be okay to, to admit when we're not doing well, to admit when we're not spiritually healthy and to admit that often we're not spiritually healthy and, and it's our own doing, it's our own fault. See, we were created for so much more than we settle for, but we don't get there by pretending everything's fine or blaming others. We get there, point one, step one, by acknowledging our spiritual sleepiness is very often the result of our own spiritual sin, acknowledging our culpability for our lack of revival. Point one, culpability. Point two then, it really comes after our culpability and is connected to it, and that's our inability our inability to revive ourselves and God's call to seek revival from him. Now this is an important nuance because very often when we realize that we are culpable, guilty, we'll then step into trying to fix it. We realize something's wrong and so we want to do what we can to try and fix it. But friends, we need to understand that sometimes we create problems that we can't fix. And we may be culpable for our lack of revival, but that doesn't mean that we can snap our fingers and, and fix it. We've created a problem that we ourselves are unable to fix. I remember when we moved into our, our house two or three years ago. We're having an issue with the shower because the shower, uh, the temperature control wasn't great and it would get to like a thousand degrees, okay? It'd be like this scalding shower. And I heard, oh, you can, you can do something about that, right? And so I went in and I unscrewed everything and took it all apart. And then... I couldn't put it back together again. <laughs> okay? And Rosie says to me, well, you took it apart, right? And I was like, that doesn't mean I can put it back together again. Okay? Creating a problem that, that myself. Yeah, but that doesn't mean that, that I can fix it. And very often, a spiritual self-sufficiency seems natural, seems instinctive almost. I've created a problem, so I'm going to fix it. But that's not how the gospel works. The gospel doesn't work by us 
fixing ourselves. In fact, very often when we try to fix ourselves, we end up just making things worse. Back to my shower. I decide, aha, I think I know what I need, and Home Depot has it, right? So I go to Home Depot, and I find this piece that's going to fix my shower problems. And I pick it up, and I return home, and I'm pretty sure it's the right one. And it sort of fits on, but doesn't quite fit into the you know, mechanism there. And so I think it just, it just needs a little push, right? <laughs> if in doubt, use a bigger hammer, right? Well, I now know that plumbing and brute force are not a good combination, okay? <laughs> right? Um, because now I don't just have bits and pieces, screws and things everywhere. I now have water everywhere, okay? Now, it's, it's sort of okay because I'm in the shower, right? But it's still a little bit of a disaster, right? Um, and again, there's something, something similar. When we, when we respond to our guilt by trying to fix ourselves, we end up making matters worse because it actually takes us further away from dependence on the God who alone can fix us. So what we need isn't to fix ourselves. What we need is, is the Lord. What we need, we could say, is to call for help. It's what I did for my shower. I called the plumber. And he came in his own sweet time. A thousand years were like a day in his sight. Right? <laughs> and there was, there was payment for my sin. Right? But he was like God to me, right? Because I needed his help. (laughs) And isn't it interesting? Isn't it interesting that in our text, Jesus doesn't once tell the Laodiceans to fix themselves. He doesn't say you're lukewarm, so come on, let's warm up a little bit. He doesn't say, oh, you're wretched. Stop that wretchedness. You're pitiable. Come on, buck yourselves up. You're poor, create some wealth. You're blind, you're naked. Do something about it. No, he never, never calls them to fix themselves. Instead, what does, it, what, does it, what does he do? He calls them to come to him. He calls them to, to, to call for help. Verse 18, I counsel you to buy from me gold. Come, come to me to buy salvation. We know from Isaiah 55 that the price of salvation is free. Verse 20, he calls them, uh, if anyone hears my voice and, and opens the door, I will come in to him and eat with him. In other words, don't try fix this yourselves. Come to, to me. We need to acknowledge our inability. Acknowledge that if you're struggling spiritual, spiritual sleepiness, spiritual apathy, can't just be solved um, with a few simple steps. That, that revival is not a mechanical process whereby if you follow these guidelines that will guarantee success, you can never get into Narnia the same way twice. <laughs> Instead, we're called to come to God and ask him to do what we can do for ourselves. Now, is that discouraging? You know, is our inability discouraging? It's only discouraging if you think you care more about your spiritual health than God cares about your spiritual health. (laughs) Because we know what God's will is. God's will for his people is this glorious vision of uh, his presence in our lives and his pleasure in our lives, whereby we walk with him gladly and joyfully, following his commands, finding our lives flourish for it, finding his peace for every sorrow, his strength for every struggle. It's this vision of intimacy and joy. We, we know what he wants. The point I'm trying to make just now, though, is we just don't know how he's going to get us there. 
So never, never underestimate the graciousness of God. But be slow to set expectations as to how that grace will play out in your life. Because his ways aren't our ways and his paths aren't our paths and, and, and he does his work but we don't always know how. We acknowledge, in other words, our own inability to revive ourselves and look to him. Point two then, our inability. Point one, culpability. Point two, inability. Point three we see in our text is responsibility. Now again, let's see if we're getting into more nuance here. We've just said inability. We can't do anything about this. Does that mean that we're entirely passive? Does that, does that mean that we just sort of sit by the sidelines and, and, and wait for revival to happen? Well, our text would say no. It would say that grace brings responsibilities. As we've already mentioned, we've, we're called and given the responsibility to come to him, to call out for help. What is our responsibility? Our responsibility is to go to him, verses 18 and 20. How do we do this? Let me give you some really practical thoughts on that. First of all, when we come to the Lord, in order that we might come to the Lord, we need to first remove those things from our lives that, that hinder our relationship with him, that stop us from coming, that are bad for our spiritual health, that squash revival. An example, one pastor tells the story that all pastors could tell, because they've all, all had this conversation, but of, a, of a, a student that came home for the summer. And when they had left, they'd been really uh, alive to the Lord and had a, had a great, vibrant faith. And now that he uh, returned home, he was sharing with the pastor that he just really wasn't experiencing a kind of spiritual vitality, spiritual vibrancy. He really didn't feel like he was walking with the Lord. Well, the pastor who knew some of his story and knew some of his circumstances asked him a strange question. In response to this kind of spiritual struggle, the pastor said, oh, how long have you been sleeping with your girlfriend? And the guy was like, that's a weird question. About six weeks. And the pastor went on to explain, well, you understand the challenge here, right? You're, you're, yes, you're not experiencing on a daily basis the presence of the Lord in your life but at the same time you're, you're actively walking in rebellion against the Lord so of course that's going to have an impact on your relationship with him uh, put this in much more kind of like in, in this regard think about your relationship with the Lord in the same way you think about your relationship with, with anyone t- t- take my relationship with my wife for example okay it turns out that my marriage goes better men listen up this is free advice my marriage goes better when I stop doing those things that annoy my wife. <laughs> it's shocking reality, right? <laughs> you know? Now, it's fun too, because I think in every marriage, and it's fun to try to identify these things in yours, what are those things in your marriage that you've been arguing about literally for a decade, right? Often these low-level things, like where the socks go, or, you know, just these kind of small, small arguments that you've been having for a long time. Well, it turns, it turns out that, yeah, my marriage is healthier and the dynamics between me and my bride are happier when I, don't, when I, when I just stop doing those things that frustrate her. And there's a similar dynamic there to our spiritual lives. 
If we're living in sin and refusing to repent, and look, sin's not as easy as just stop it always, but if we're not seeking repentance, if we're not seeking to follow him, if we're cherishing sin in our lives and, and not letting the Lord shine his light into that darkness, that is going to hinder revival. It's going to hinder revival. So, yeah. It was our responsibility to come to the Lord, so we want to squash those things that hinder our revival. Secondly, though, we also want to pursue those things that foster revival. Pursue those things that foster revival. Now, again, we're not saying there's like a simple formula or three easy steps, but it's still important for us to do those things that we know are, are, are spiritually healthy for us. So, for example, all the things that we've reflected upon together in this series. The importance of, of practicing the presence of God, of, of being disciplined to wake up and remind yourself that you're handcuffed to this Jesus. The importance of a regular, vibrant prayer life. The importance of coming and giving yourself away in, in worship. The importance of being active in a, in a community, of having Christian brothers and sisters who, who know you. The importance of being generous. The importance of, of serving others. All these things add up. Not to become a checklist that if you do each of them guarantees revival, but, but to foster spiritual health in your life. It turns out that those Christians who are alive tend to do these things. Again, don't overcomplicate it. Think of it like any, like, like any relationship. Yes, my marriage is helped when I don't do those things that are annoying. And my marriage is helped when I do those things that build health into our relationship. So when I listen... When I don't try to fix things. <laughs> when I, um, I'm patient and tender and involved and interested. Right? These things create health in my relationship with my wife. Now, is it possible I could do those things and she could still be frustrated with me? Sure, that's possible. But it's not, it's not likely. We want to um, squash those things that hinder revival. We want to pursue those things that foster revival. And then thirdly, uh, we trust the Spirit to lead us on from there. Our spiritual, we, we, walk, we walk by the Spirit. We don't, again, think we can entirely fix ourselves. And so when the Spirit shows us the step that we need to take, we don't demand to know the end from the beginning. Only the Lord knows the end from the beginning. If he's putting on your heart that, yeah, there's something you need to squash or there's something you need to pursue or there's a, a thing in your life he wants you to work on, then take that step and trust him to show you what the next step is when you need to know it. So, our responsibility to come to him. Our culpability, our inability, our responsibility. And then fourth, and finally, our, our opportunity. Our opportunity. This series has in some ways involved some, some hard truths. And I think last week and, and even this week, kind of just some hard truths. I mean, this week, well, it's a rough sermon. Point one, culpability is your fault. Inability, you can't do anything about it. Responsibility, but you still got to try. Right? You're like, Ugh. <laughs> that's rough. <laughs> um, yeah, and we've wanted to press into that a little bit. We wanted to press into some of these hard truths because we want our faith to be found genuine. We don't want to be the shallow soil. We want our faith to stand the test of time to be to be real. And we want to be sober-minded in how we think about it because, you know, you can talk about revival and it costs you nothing at all. But to actually be revived might cost you everything. (laughs) But our final point is the opportunity. The opportunity because, yes, revival might cost you everything but will also give you 
more than you could have ever asked for or imagined. The following Jesus, you need to fight to believe. I know I need to fight to believe. Following Jesus is always worth it. Always. You will never regret following Christ. No matter if it costs you everything. And that's the opportunity that, that, that's given to us. is this relationship with him whereby we walk with him in this life. Don't you love verse 20 that speaks about how you know, if anyone uh, hears my voice and comes to me, then, then I'll come in with him. And I'll eat with him and, and he with me. It's this picture of, of relationship together, of, of intimacy as we sit and dine, of, of family together where we experience not just his presence with us, but his pleasure in us. And we're able to, to walk with him through the things of life and find him sufficient. Find his, his peace enough for every sorrow. Find his strength enough for every struggle. Experience what it's like to live arm in arm with the God of the universe. And not just this life. Verse 21 talks about the, the opportunity we have for the next life as well. The one who conquers will grant him to sit in my throne as I also can conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. This idea that the, the beauty of the Christian life is not just for time but for eternity. The, the, the rewards are not just here, they're there. And so we fight for that perspective to see that it, the opportunity before us is one that if we grasp, we will never regret. Helen Keller, I'm sure you're all familiar with Helen Keller, famous figure in American history. It seems like when at, at any elementary school wax museum, there'll be like three or four wee girls dressed up as Helen Keller, you know, famous figure. Um, Known, of course, after uh, an illness as she was just a wee toddler, uh, left her unable to hear and unable to see. A big turning point came in her life when she got connected with a woman called Anne Sullivan, who was a teacher and a pioneer in what was called touch teaching techniques. And so the, the famous moment came when this teacher, Anne Sullivan, ran young Keller's hand under so, uh, some water and spelled out on her hands, W. A-T-E-R. And this girl who had never been able to hear or see suddenly understood that this thing she felt had a name. (laughs) That there were words for things. That there was language that you could communicate. And from that point on she would go on to learn how to um, not just uh, write and also read but also speak as as well, an, an amazing story, an amazing journey. Well, a less well-known story about Helen Keller, and it may be apocryphal, I can't track it down, but a less well-known story is about the time when Anne Sullivan introduced Helen to Jesus. It was the end of a, a pretty typical day, and it was time for, for the teacher, Anne, to go, to go home. And this threw Helen into something of a panic. You can imagine that the darkness and the isolation of being unable to communicate with anyone but this, this one person. And then when this one person goes to leave, you suddenly feel fear and suddenly feel isolated. Well, Anne Sullivan took Helen's hand and wrote in it, Don't be afraid. You're not alone. Jesus is with you. And the wee girl turned her teacher's palm over and wrote back, I've always wondered what his name was. <laughs> I've always wondered what his name was. 
We know for certain from letters that uh, she would write in, in later life that even before she knew what to call God, she knew that God existed. Before she had a name for him, she understood that he was there in her darkness and in her isolation. She knew she wasn't alone because she knew that someone was with her. But the opportunity we have this morning isn't to celebrate an unnamed presence. We don't come to to an unknown force. The opportunity we have is to come to Jesus. Before you were born, Jesus knew you. Before you were born, Jesus loved you. Before you were born, Jesus rejoiced in you. And even now in the gospel, you are the object of his unremitting, unrelenting, unrepentant love. And he has removed the curse of sin by his death on the cross so that you are now his and he is now yours. And he invites you to walk with him on this day-to-day basis. That's the opportunity we have as believers, to live in his presence and pleasure. Even now, yes, we're culpable. Yes, we're unable. Yes, we're responsible. But we also have this opportunity to be alive today because Jesus is here today. To be awake today because Jesus is awake today. To be animated by his grace today because he offers us his grace today. A prayer for my heart, my prayer for yours, is that we will press into that and that we might live the Christian life without pretending. Let's pray together. Lord, we ask that we would not be a people who go through the motions, who treat church like a social club, who live the Christian life pretending. Lord, we, we want your grace to do more in us than that. We, we want it to, to lead us into a, a deeper walk with you, whereby you are our all in all where we live our lives all, all for Jesus. And Father, we know this great opportunity that is ours, that we will, we will always be glad, Lord, for, for pressing into our relationship with you. We'll never regret anything that we might give up for you. And you alone are enough and sufficient to satisfy our souls. Thank you, Lord, for this time. We're glad in the name of your Son. Amen.